and welcome to TTELT, Teaching Tips for English Language Teachers, a program of educators worldwide. I'm your host today, Melanie Gobert. Hello, everyone. This is Melanie Gobert, your host for today's episode of TTELT, Teaching Tips for English Language Teachers, a program brought to you by Educators Worldwide. I'm your host, Melanie Gobert, and joining us today is Anastasia Kawanja, from uh, adjunct professor at University of Florida, and she is currently based in Palestine. She's going to be talking to us about how to use the linguistic landscape to study and explain a region in conflict. Welcome, Anastasia. Hi, thank you, Melanie, for having me. Okay, your topic is pretty new for me. So could you begin your introduction, explaining it to someone who doesn't know very much about the topic? Sure. So linguistic landscape is essentially using uh, road signs, uh, private signs, government signs, uh, in order to see what languages are being used or what languages are not being used in a particular region. Uh, this comes from uh, Landry and Borges, a study in 1997 that really started to look at linguistic landscape uh, as a way to look at identity, look at politics, look at different ideas, and really kind of find ways to, to see how um, linguistics and languages can help to shape the identity of a people living in a particular area. Okay, so how is this relevant, uh, relevant to the situation in Palestine and Israel? Yeah, so um, when you're, so in Palestine and Israel, and I wish I had like slides, I could show you like maps. Um, so it's, um, Palestine and Israel is actually very complicated. And I actually work with a counterpart of mine, Dr. Bridget Shabbat, who is also over in Israel. And she looks at linguistic landscape in Israel. I was looking in Palestine. So we kind of got together and joined forces to get an idea of what was happening in the region as a whole. Uh, what's commonly misunderstood, although these days uh, with social media and a lot more exposure, it's becoming more of an understanding um, that um, it's not just Israelis on one side of a separation wall or fence or barrier uh, and Palestinians are on the other side. It's actually a lot more nuanced and complex. There are Palestinians who actually live in Israel, usually called their Arab Israelis, but there's also what most of us um, call settlers or uh, living on the other side of the separation wall in, actual, in, in Palestine. Uh, some live kind of on the outskirts and some live actually really deep into the West Bank. Um, and that is probably where you see a lot of the news for um, skirmishes, fights, um, murders, et cetera, um, when we have this. So um, what I, I don't typically like to write about the politics uh, that tends to get a little bit messy. Uh, so what I wanted to do was look at the languages being represented uh, in the region. And so when I first started this, when I was uh, in the West Bank, um, 2011, 2012, when I started my PhD, I started looking at the science and wow, there's Arabic. Okay, that's understandable. Palestinians speak Arabic. Hey, there's English. Yeah, okay, that's understandable because English is a more globalized language and all of that. But oh, hey, there's Hebrew. Why is there Hebrew on, in the West Bank? Why is there Hebrew in Palestine? 
oh, this is interesting. And so I started kind of looking at the why. Now, linguistic landscape at the beginning really didn't ask the why. It just said, hey, here are the signs, here are the percentages, here's what the possibilities might be of why these languages are here and why these languages are not here. But in a region in conflict, especially, you need to start asking why. Uh, and so like in villages, for example, when I would see Hebrew, you know, it turns out that a lot of the settlers in Lesotona would come in, get their cars worked on, get some vegetables, because a lot of the Palestinian, especially males in the village would, who lived close to checkpoints would actually go back and forth and work in Israel. Um, so the settlers would come in and they would support, for lack of a better term, the villages and, you know, because it's cheaper to uh, shop there than to actually shop in Israel. Um, and, you know, then you look at the signs on the roads near these settlements where they're only in Hebrew or they're in Hebrew and English and there's no Arabic at all, right? Um, one of a really popular settlement sign is a big red one. It says, welcome Benjamin, and it's a red wolf and it's only in Hebrew. Or who are they welcoming? Well, they're not welcoming Palestinians and they're not welcoming tourists either because it's only in Hebrew. Uh, so it's a way to kind of shape and, you know, kind of figure out the different and complex groups that are represented either legally or illegally within the West Bank. Okay, so how can we use linguistic landscape theory to continue difficult conversations in regions of conflict? How can we dig deeper beyond what's on the surface? Yeah, so Bridget and I actually talk a lot about this in our, um, in our chapter. Uh, in a book, and of course I can't remember the title of it right now, um, but it's about um, uh, creating classrooms uh, in uh, English language education. It's uh, and we talk about how she's used uh, linguistic landscape to get her students to um, design projects that would get them to understand um, uh, Israel better. Um, and for us, at least for me in the West Bank, it's a way to get at the hard, difficult questions. So when people wanna know what's going on, I say, well, here's a sign, it's in Hebrew, this is a settlement. Here's a sign in Ramallah, this is in Arabic and English. Why is it not Hebrew? Well, if you look at this, technically settlers are not allowed in this area. And they show that by not having any Hebrew at all, it's a major city, it's kind of the interim capital, uh, Ramallah. And, um, the other point I was going to make. Yeah, and then also graffiti. Uh, graffiti is also part of the landscape as well. And when there's a lot of high escalation, like there has been for the past couple of months, uh, you see graffiti over the Arabic and it has like a Star of David over it. Now, as somebody who actually has Jewish ancestry in my family, I hate seeing the Star of David used that way, but it's a way for some of these settlers, and not all settlers, but some of the settlers to try to show power, to try to show this, to, to try to instill fear that they're there and the Arabic should not exist and this is their land. And it's a very strong message when you're driving by and you see the, the um, Arabic um, spray painted away and you see the Star of David. Um, now, now, you do see the spray paint try to be wiped off and things like that. Um, but it's using the signs and also the signs are dynamic, right? They can change, they can be graffiti, they cannot be graffitied. Um, one side could just like end up in Hebrew because there's a new settlement. 
uh, it's a way to try to tell the story of what happens over here without getting, I guess, maybe too political. Uh, it's not good to get political here. Uh, so when you stick to the languages and you stick to identity and you especially stick to what Palestinians or Israelis tell you, then you yourself are not injecting your opinion and your thoughts and your ideas. And so it's a little easier to kind of move under the radar to do this type of work and investigation and, and somewhat kind of bring awareness. Um, it's certainly not our objective, at least when we're working together, is not necessarily peace, but it's just basically to bring awareness because I don't know where there is a path forward for peace, at least in the near, near future. And a lot of people who live here don't either, but at least we can bring awareness and at least we can keep the conversations going no matter where they might take us, no matter how many detours we might have to go to get there. To keep the conversations going, to keep things, to to keep people talking, that's kind of our best bet right now. If that makes any sense. Yes. So just a little technical, practical question. So most of this signage is, of course, put up by one government or the other, I assume. And you've mentioned also graffiti, which is sort of the human element. But what about in in uh, in shops and local areas? I mean, right. because the government's not putting signs there, and if Right. Jewish settlers are shopping in local Palestinian shops. I mean, did mm -hmm. you also look at this landscape? Yes. Yeah, so uh, especially when I look at my uh, my uh, husband's family village, if you look on the outskirts, like not deep within, but on the outskirts, most of the signs are in Hebrew. And that is a choice by the business owners. Um, you don't see a lot of Arabic at all. Then like as you get deeper into the village, because settlers will not venture deep into the village. It's just not, you know, it's just not going to be a good idea. Um, but within kind of like, so there, so those signs in Hebrew are kind of like landmarkers for them to say, yeah, you can shop here, you can do business here. Uh, but if they're not in Hebrew or at least in Hebrew and Arabic, they're not going to go near it. They're, they're just not going to go there. Um, and then as far as like, um, so for example, the, uh, there's a big city, uh, Ramallah, um, some of the business owners, they like to kind of have a play on words. Like one of my favorite coffee shops to go to is literally called Stars and Bucks Cafe. And it's in English, but it's also in the Arabic transliteration. So you see the Arabic, uh, letters are, uh, transliterated Stars and Bucks Cafe. So when you're reading the Arabic right to left, you're literally reading those English words. Um, there's also plays on words like there, there are a couple of French words and Spanish words and things to kind of make more of a globalized feel, despite the fact that travel is not easy uh, for most Palestinians in the West Bank. Uh, but there is this feel, um, we do have embassies and consulates. And so we do have, for example, we have a, a Japanese consulate, we have a Chinese consulate. Um, so there are definitely different, maybe not a lot of, but there are different countries that are represented. Um, and most of them are stationed within Ramallah. Uh, so different signs and things in those different languages kind of signify um, by those shop owners, not necessarily the governments, but different shop owners and um, local entities that there's a bit more of a multicultural uh, element. Okay, so just to finish and bring this around to our global audience, there are many places that are actually experiencing conflict in the world today. So what recommendations would you give to teachers or researchers in one of these areas of conflict 
to begin this type of uh, study? Yeah, um, I've really found that because language is so intertwined and attached to identity, that um, it can really be a powerful way to dig into yourself um, if you are of a nationality that is, that is in conflict. Um, it is also a really powerful way to connect uh, with your students and to bring about conversations. I mean, depending on, um, I know maybe some schools may have a rule that you can't talk about certain things, oh, but language though, language is intertwined in everything. And so even just like showing a picture and saying, what do you see? What languages do you see? What languages do you not see? It, it can start a conversation into, um, into different topics that maybe teachers and students need to have, uh, but it's too sensitive to talk about outright. So it's literally, for me at least, when, um, when I do different kind of consultation work and things and you know, um, I'm in different places in Palestine, um, even just like showing pictures and saying, what do you think of this? And you know, why would there be Hebrew here? Sometimes it opens the door for them to tell a story. Um, depending on what they feel comfortable revealing, but it definitely opens um, kind of a, at least a window uh, into uh, ideas and thoughts that maybe you wouldn't normally have access to if you just outright said, what do you think of the occupation? What do you think of colonization? Hey, what are these languages here? Tell me about them. Or, you know, hey, that's your favorite, you know, store or something like what languages are on your favorite store and why do you think those languages are there? Um, so it, it's a way to kind of delve into different um, ideas without getting, I guess, too personal on the surface. Yeah. Okay, Anastasia, that takes us to the end of our interview. I cannot thank you enough for joining me today to talk about the linguistic landscape as a research methodology, especially in Palestine and Israel. This has been your host, Melanie Gobert, on behalf of TTELT, Teaching Tips for English Language Teachers, a program brought to you by Educators Worldwide. Thank you again, Anastasia. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us today. Share with us how you are using these tips. Leave us a comment or voice message on social media or at ttelt.org. Thanks for joining this episode of TTELT, brought to you by Educators Worldwide. Follow, like, and subscribe to TTELT on your social media. And try a new teaching tip today.